Welcome to the Think for Yourself podcast, hosted by Dr. Vikram Mancharamani. If you haven't subscribed, please do so via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Podbean. And now, over to Dr. Mancharamani. everyone for tuning into this 14th episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. In this episode, I'll be sharing the audio portion of my webinar discussion with Greg Hayes. Greg is formerly the Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of United Technologies and is currently the Chief Executive Officer of Raytheon Technologies, a company that was formed when the UTC aerospace business was merged with the Raytheon company. As you'll hear in the interview, I've known Greg for years and I'm thrilled that I've had the chance to work with him and the folks at United Technologies on several transactions. I'm looking forward to sharing some more of my thoughts about the interview after it, uh, but in the meantime, please do enjoy my conversation. I am absolutely thrilled uh, that I have with me today uh, Greg Hayes, who is the current Chief Executive Officer of uh, Raytheon Technologies. Um, and so we're gonna have a conversation today about a lot of things, uh, but before we do that, let me uh, quickly, oops, sorry about this. Let's see if this delay is uh, stuck. Play from the start. All right, so uh, Greg's gonna be our uh, guest today and I'm gonna enjoy talking with him about a range of topics uh, and that'll be a really fun conversation, hopefully informative, uh, and I'll encourage all of you to ask questions feel free to submit the questions through the Q&A tab on your Zoom uh, uh, window there. Uh, but also, really quick plug, my book is finally out, has been released. Uh, it was released on Tuesday. Um, it's available at Barnes & Noble and other bookstores, but Amazon, master of logistics that that company is, uh, seemingly doesn't have the book right now. So uh, they're taking orders, but they're not filling orders. Uh, other stores are. So I would encourage you, please uh, go out and get it if you can. Uh, and I hope you enjoy it. I'd love the feedback once you read it. And then in terms of uh, the quick uh, recap of where we've been and the replays that are available. Uh, last week, we had Bruce Grucock, chairman of Peter Kiewit & Sons, uh, one of the construction, largest construction companies in the United States, uh, privately held, unique ownership model, really fabulous conversation, wide ranging, and that replay is available as is the, the replay with Reigns Priebus uh, about uh, some of the dynamics in US uh, politics and the Republican National Committee and, and some of the early uh, stories he had on the Trump administration. Um, the fun replay with Apollo Robbins is available. This is, uh, he's an entertainer, but also a thinking uh, thief, if you will, a con man, uh, or at least uh, for entertainment purposes. And so uh, that replay, a really fun one is available, uh, as is James Grant uh, and sort of the economic and financial commentary he had about the role of the Federal Reserve and gold prices and asset prices, et cetera. Um, Kishore Mabubani, uh, that replay is also available uh, about has China won and US-China dynamics and the, the stresses of that great power rivalry. Um, there's Tom Petrie who talked to us about oil uh, and his book, Following Oil. And I have to say, Tom was 100% spot on. We talked to him the week that oil prices went negative and by the end of, uh, I think the end of last week, they were really at his target, sort of 30 to $40 a share or $40 a barrel. Uh, really quite stunning that he was so insightful. Uh, we had General Robinson, uh, General Lori Robinson, former commander of NORAD, former commander of NORTHCOM, uh, and that was a, a really fun conversation. And then we began uh, back in the earlier days of the pandemic with Dr. Ali Khan talking about the next pandemic. Uh, 
Uh, and so again, with that as backdrop, let me uh, now turn to the topic at hand, which is uh, a conversation with Greg Hayes. So Greg, thank you for uh, joining me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Vikram. So I'm gonna, hey, I'm gonna introduce you, uh, Greg, if you don't mind, with a little section from the book. Um, for those, uh, apologies for the, uh, the short book excerpt, if you will, but I think it's pertinent and some of Greg's uh, team said it would be an interesting way to start. So I'm going to say years ago, I was invited to address the top management team of United Technologies, one of the world's largest companies that at the time included iconic brands and businesses such as Otis, Carrier, and Pratt and & Whitney. Um, and so at a cocktail party the evening before my talk, I pulled Greg aside, CEO, obviously Greg Hayes, uh, having read his annual letters, I had noticed most of the company's materials discussed mega trends that drove their strategy, urbanization and the emergence of a global middle class. And so at this cocktail party, I pulled Greg aside and asked him if, he'd ever if he had ever considered entering the agriculture business. Uh, he looked suspicious at, suspiciously at me and asked why I would think a technology intensive manufacturing company would want to do that. Separately, I suspect he also thought he was questioning why he decided to have me at that external meeting. I discussed how urbanization and a rising global middle class would drive demand for protein. He indicated that no one, literally no one, had ever suggested that they enter agriculture and that they probably wouldn't do so. He thanked me and then walked away to mingle with others. Since then, Greg and I have gotten to know each other a little better and spent some time. Uh, Greg, is that a fair characterization? That, that's a fair characterization. I, you know, shock and awe would probably be the best way to describe that. I'm like, what the hell is this guy thinking? Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it uh, it has been a it's been a great relationship, and uh, Vikram has brought a lot to uh, to the organization from an intellectual discipline standpoint. I'd say. And so I was interested when I read his book and I saw the excerpt in there. It's exactly, you know, what we value about Vikram is um, he 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 thinks. Differently, he thinks you know. I'll use an old term, outside of the box, and that's uh, really why uh, why we value him so much as an advisor, and why I have personally valued him, as does our board. Yeah. Well, Greg, thank you for that. Um, so let's begin with the environment that we're finding ourselves in today. Uh, let's start with the pandemic. We can then move on to some of the social uh, dynamics that are taking place across the country in the wake of George Floyd's. Uh, unfortunate and tragic death, but let's start with the pandemic. You are in the business today of travel, aerospace, uh, and we'll get to the defense side, but at least the aerospace side. Uh, the pandemic's changing that world dramatically. What does it mean? What does the future look like? How have you coped with it today? You know, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating question. I've been in aerospace now for 30 some years. And I've seen cycle, right? I've seen the ups and downs in the 90s. And I've seen, you know, after 9-11, we saw it in the financial crisis. Um, you know, we saw it with the SARS epidemic. I won't even call it pandemic, but epidemic back in the 2002-2003 uh, time frame. And I would say nothing prepares you for what happened to the commercial aerospace business. You think about Raytheon Technologies, you know, our, we're roughly $75 billion in revenue pro forma. And we just came together back in April, so it's about all 11 weeks ago. But, you know, about half defense and half commercial aerospace. Of that, of that half, it's commercial aerospace. About half of it's going to go away this year. So unprecedented drop in demand. 
And not surprising, when you think about the, the fear that people have of catching this, this virus without any viable treatment options today, which is all changing, people are afraid. And, you know, air traffic dropped by 95% in the U.S., right? We have started to see a slow recovery, but frankly, we think it's going to be the end of 2022 or early 23 before we're really going to see kind of a return to normalcy where there's herd immunity, there's the vaccine, there's treatment options and all that, where people actually feel comfortable getting on a metal tube to travel for 10 or 12 hours with a bunch of folks they don't know. And I think that's the, that is the challenge is what do you do between now and then? And so, you know, we, we know how to take costs out. We know how to reduce costs. We know how to do all those things. And we're going to take a couple of billion dollars of variable cost out. We're going to you know, do what we can to, to hold the business together. The fortunate thing, again, is by coming together with Raytheon this year, we have the perfect balance with a large defense portfolio with a very large backlog. So there's no, there's no liquidity issues with us, but there's certainly going to be some pain uh, and some significant restructuring over the next uh, 6, 12 months. Yeah, well, I remember, Greg, while helping uh, you think about some of these transactions that uh, you received a lot of flack, if you will, from some of the investment community and some of the more strategic thinkers saying, you have this wonderful commercial aerospace business. Why are you putting it together with that slow growth defense business? Look, yeah. look, look pretty smart now. Well, I looked pretty stupid last June when we signed the deal. So, I, I you know... We go from the, the outhouse to the penthouse. Um, you're not quite sure how it happened, but luck had a lot to probably to do with it. Um, I would say that like, you really got to step back, though, if you think about you know, what the, the rationale. You know, when I took over five and a half years ago, we were a very big conglomerate with um, Sikorsky helicopters, notice elevators, and carrier. And the first thing I did is say, look, we, we, we've got to change up the portfolio. We want to be a systems provider. And to me, that meant air conditioning and elevators and aircraft systems, but not aircraft itself. And so we sold Sikorsky about four months after I took over. Um, and that got me thinking about kind of the broader implications is do these pieces really fit? And um, that, was a, that was a tough decision. And that's one of the reasons, we, you know, after uh, the encounter I had with Vikram the first time you know, where he got me thinking about ag, and I, I think you know, the only thing that stuck, stru struck me about that conversation was something an early mentor of mine said, which is stick to your knitting, you idiot. Um, in other words, know, know what you know and, and don't try and get into things you don't know. So that we are not in the agriculture business, but I would tell you it was, it was fascinating as we thought about splitting up the company. Um, I think every one of my senior executives were 100% aligned around the idea, yep, we should split the company up. We should split up Carrier and Otis and have this big commercial aero business. It will be great because commercial arrow is going to grow forever. And I called Vikram and I said, Vikram, I've got a problem. I said, um, my, all of my folks are 100% lined up behind my strategy. Something, I'm missing something. I must be. And I think that was <laughs> when, when, I, when I called him and I said, look, I, I need you to run a red team. I got a blue team that knows what, exactly what they want to do. Tell me why I shouldn't do it. And I would tell you that that those discussions that, that you and I had over the course of yeah. must have been about four or five months. Um, and you even came to the board and presented the case to keep the company together. And I give you credit because there was no way I was going to do it. Well, at least I listened. And I think what was most important though, was the, it gave the management team credibility that we're willing to listen to an alternative point of view. 
And I got to tell you, as you read this book, this idea of employing experts, it's interesting. But you really need people with a broad generalist kind of view to think about all of the things that you're not thinking about. We're, we know the aerospace business, but we weren't thinking about some of the other things that I think, Vikram, you helped us uh, at least uh, ponder through. Yeah, well, you know, Greg, one of the things that I really enjoyed uh, in those discussions with you and the board was the willingness to seek out, not just sit and passively look for disagreement, but to actually seek the disagreement. And it does remind me of that Alfred Sloan quote, uh, you know, the former chairman of General Motors who goes in to make a big strategic decision. And, you know, everyone's sort of bobbing their heads along like bobbleheads saying, yes, yes, yes. And he says, you know, I think I have it here. I take it we're all in complete agreement uh, on the decision here. And then he says, then I propose we postpone further discussion on this matter to give our times, to give ourselves some time to develop disagreement and perhaps gain some understanding of what this decision is really about. And I think you and your team did that naturally, or at least my participation in it. I guess I was the one presenting some of the disagreement, um, but, uh, but that was really interesting. Yeah, I would actually, it's something I would recommend for any of these big strategic decisions is you need somebody to come in and say why. Because all of us, we, we come to these conclusions. You know, I from the day I started at UTC, I always questioned why we had this conglomerate because there was very little center. I mean, the megatrends were driving growth in all the businesses. But, you know, building an elevator is a hell of a lot different than building an airplane engine or building an aircraft system. So there weren't, there weren't really technology synergies. There weren't really market synergies. There were only macro synergies. Yep. So I, in my own head, I, I, I always said, yep, I'm, if I ever get a chance, I'm going to break the damn thing up. Yep. Well, great. But, but I knew I was missing something. <laughs> well, there's, uh, you know, you're 100 days or so into this, uh, this new enterprise and the new role and uh, the new company. I cannot imagine... Greg, a more unusual first 100 days from an environment perspective for any corporate leader, uh, whether it's the pandemic that we've already touched on, but also the, you know, the social tensions in America that have risen uh, based on, uh, again, the George Floyd tragic death, et cetera. Um, any thoughts on A, the first 100 days and how you felt they have gone? And then a little, maybe any comments you might have on the sort of social dynamic we're finding ourselves in? You employ a lot of people. I mean, this is, this is a- Yeah, I've got about 200,000 people around the world, most of those here in the US. I would tell you, it's, you know, when, when we started this work from home thing, now this was probably the middle of March. Um, and here I was in the middle of trying to spin off two big businesses or carrier and trying to close on a transaction three weeks later. And frankly, I had never used Zoom before, right? Yeah. All, all new to me. I consider myself a Zoom expert now. But the, the fact is, I, I still, 100 days in, I have yet to have a staff meeting in person. I've yet to have a board of directors meeting in person. I've yet to do much besides a couple of plant, trip, plant tours in person. And yet we have somehow managed to come together as an organization, bring the cultures together using this wonderful technology tool. And it is, it's causing us to rethink about the nature of how we're going to do business going forward, which, again, we, we can talk a lot about that. We're, we're not sure, but we know we don't ever have to build another office building. But anyways, you know, the team has remarkably done a remarkable job of coming together. I would tell you the, the pandemic, the first pandemic, that is COVID-19, was a, a, a compelling catastrophe that forced us to work together from day one because... There were so many unknowns. We formed a team 
across all of the businesses, the Raytheon businesses, the legacy UTC businesses, the corporate staff, and we met every single day to talk about what do we do? How do we keep our people healthy? How do we keep them safe? How do we keep delivering to customers? And those daily um, uh, brainstorming sessions, those day, some, of, some almost a panic, like, oh my God, look at all the people in New York that are dying, yeah. really brought the team together for a common purpose, which is to deliver to our customers while making sure every, each and every one of our employees remain safe. So that was, it was a challenge, but I always think, you know, you know in chaos comes opportunity. And that really was a, a great opportunity for, uh, for us to come together. You know, at the same time, of course, on Memorial Day, we had this, this tragedy of George Floyd. And you know, it was interesting. I, I put a note out to all of our people after that, condemning racism and, and reaffirming our values. But the more I thought about it, you know, racism is like a pandemic, right? It, it is a, a disease, unfortunately, for which the only cure is education and empathy. And as I've been going around listening to, to folks talk about all this, I said, look, th this is not a new pandemic. We've had racism has existed since civilization began, right? Us against them. The only way we're going to get through this is if we figure out together how to work together, or how to bring society together, and how to hold our elected officials accountable, how to also help those who are less fortunate than us. We've made some big donations, $5 million to um, Feed America, because I always say you can't educate the youth if you don't feed them, because you can't learn when you're hungry. And so we've spent $5 million in the last month um, trying to make sure people have the basic necessities. We're also spending about $6 million uh, working on the um, educational initiatives with while something called the NAF, which is the National Academy Foundation. Mm -hmm. It's focused on inner city youth and the STEM scientists and providing mentors, technology, tools, teachers to help the inner city folks who would otherwise not have these opportunities prepared to get to college for a career in, in the science STEM, STEM disciplines. It's a long-term effort. You know, we won't see the, the payback in, in my tenure at, at RTX, but it's something I think that we absolutely have to continue to do is to educate the youth. Education is the key out of, out of poverty. Sure. Well, great. I, I love the fact that you brought up the long-term orientation because one of the things I re remember uh, was that you were one of the individuals that signed that business roundtable letter that came out about the, the purpose of a corporation. And, you know, you and I have talked about this, but the framing, even the framing of shareholder versus stakeholder, to me is problematic. I mean, we talked about this with uh, Bruce Grucock last week, who also signed that letter. Uh, but I'm sort of curious if you have some thoughts about how at least the world has framed shareholder versus stakeholder. My take, which you know, is that it's a misframing, that in fact, it's a long-term versus short-term. And you know, everything I know about UTC and uh, I assume the, the Raytheon business here forward is long-term orientation. And that long-term orientation leads to different decisions. Yeah, look, I, if you think about the nature of the products that we build today, right, whether it's a Patriot radar system with a 30-year life or a jet engine with a 40-year life or aircraft components that last dozens and dozens of years, you, you can't just be thinking about tomorrow I mean, I, you know, if you think about it, we spend $2.5 billion of our own money on R&D every year. I could increase EPS by 50% by cutting back R&D to half of what it is. Yeah. I'm not going to do that because obviously I'm thinking, you know, how do you, how do you ensure the future? And again, the problem is the, the investments that I'm making today 
I will see no payback in the next five years that I'm here. Yeah. Right. All of these things are out 25, 2030, 2035, you know, new generations of, of propulsion for, for aircraft, new defensive systems, all of those things, the, the gestation period of those is at least five to 10 years from, from initial concept. So when we were, th- we were talking last year, and I'm on the board at the BRT, you know, there was a lot of debate around this discussion. Really, for me, it came down to the simple thing is, this is the way we operate. We, we have had a, a, an employee scholar program. We've spent a billion and a half dollars. We've had over 38,000 people get their college degree on our nickel at UTC. That was, that was one point something billion? 1.5 billion, yep. 38,000 people. Yep. Now, people would say, why would you ever spend all that money? Because and it's not like people are indentured, right? They can leave after they get their degree. Most don't. But, you know, the, the thought was always we need to have the most educated workforce we possibly can. Yeah. And this was our way to say, look, we can't guarantee you a job. We can only guarantee you the ability to learn and develop new skills. And so as we started, you know, going through this, you know, whether the stakeholders, whether it's employees, customers, suppliers, communities, or investors, there, there is no singular focus, right? I mean, the whole idea is we're driving the organization for the next generation that's going to take over after us. Remember when, when George David left and he was a, the iconic chairman CEO for, for many, many years at UTC, his, his last words to me, and I was CFO at the time, were just make sure that you leave the company better than you found it. Yep. And it, it, it didn't mean enrich yourself, right? He didn't you know, say, you know, make, make a lot of money. He said, just leave the company better when you're done. Yep. And I think that's kind of the, the driving principle as we think about how, from a leadership standpoint, what we're trying to, trying to convince people. Sure, sure. No, it's very interesting. Last week, uh, Bruce Grucock said virtually the same thing. Uh, and he referenced the, the Philippe Petit uh, advertisement that says, uh, you know, you never really own it. You just take care of it for the next generation. Right. It sounds like it's a very similar philosophy. Uh, but Greg, you, you started talking about technology and investing in technology and long run developments. One specific technology that I have been paying attention to that I'd love your thoughts on, I, I've written it up in my set of annual predictions as something that could be really disruptive in the long run, is hypersonic missile technology. Uh, and I think hypersonics, and in particular, the supposed edge that the Chinese and Russians may have on this, but you know, we don't even need to talk about the geopolitics yet, but uh, the idea of hypersonic technologies, and you and I have discussed whether speed or stealth ultimately is the sort of right way to think about it, um, and whether that's a forthcoming conflict from a technological perspective. But, but let's just transition a little bit to talking technology, and, and let me hear your thoughts on those. So, you know, hypersonic, you know, the word is kind of bandied about by, by many people. If you think about it, it is the, a, a technology, um, whether it's a, an aircraft or whether it's a missile, or interceptor vehicle that's traveling somewhere between Mach 5 and Mach 20. Yep. So, you know, somewhere between 4,000 miles an hour and 17,000 miles an hour. Uh, yeah, I know. So, so if you think about it, the U.S. for the last 40 years has been laser focused on how do you intercept a kill vehicle coming from an intercontinental ballistic missile in the atmosphere. And then think about those as they re-enter the atmosphere, are traveling roughly Mach 20, so 17,500 miles an hour. And we have, over time, developed technology uh, to hit those um, incoming projectiles and deflect them or destroy them 
I've been at this game for a long time. This was the original Star Wars under President Reagan. Yep. Um, it's, it's literally taken us 35 or 40 years to get to the point where we can have assured protection from ICBMs uh, based on technology that we have today. The problem is, if you think about a conventional missile now, this is a missile fired either from a, a submarine or like a, a cruise missile or a missile fired from an aircraft, um, typically they're going to be traveling somewhere between 600 miles an hour and uh, Mach 2, so call it 13 or 1400 miles an hour, some maybe a little bit faster. Again, the technology that we've developed with the radar systems and defensive systems, we can find those things, we can track them, and we can shoot them down. Right. The way we have decided from a, a, an offensive standpoint that we're going we're gonna to be successful is we're going to have stealth aircraft that can penetrate enemy airspace undetected, drop smart laser or self-directed weapons to targets, hit them and go. All of a sudden, hypersonics get introduced, and instead of having a weapon in Mach 2, now let's see if we've got a missile that's going, instead of 1,400 miles an hour, it's going 6,000 miles an hour comes off of a sub 250 miles off the coast of the U.S. outside of Washington. The president has about four minutes from the time we detect it until the time he's got to be below in the bunker. And, and by the way, the radar systems that we have today on the ground, they don't pick it up right away. The only way you pick it up is through space-based overhead systems because it's going so fast. And radar is essentially a, a over the, not an over-the-horizon technology. You've got to do it from space. But it is a phenomenal, phenomenally difficult um, weapon to uh, defend against. And so all of it, so, you know, we, we've been worried about continental ballistic missiles. We've been worried about stealth technology. All of a sudden now you have hypersonics. And hypersonics speed trumps stealth. Yep. I think that's, and it's a fundamental change in the way we're thinking about um, next generation of aircraft, next generation of defensive systems. Um, lots of ideas how you deal with hypersonics. Um, you know, people talk about using high energy lasers. The yep. problem is the speed that they're moving. You have to have about 30 to 60 seconds on target with a laser to um, penetrate the hull. Okay. Too late. Can't work. The only, the only solution that we have found um, is either another hypersonic missile trying to hit it. Okay. Okay. Um, or a directed energy weapon, which is really a high-powered microwave energy burst. Um, the problem with the missile is you've got to, first of all, arm it, you've got to find it, and you've got to fire it. And the, the, you, you don't probably have time to keep a human in the loop sure. to make those decisions. It has to be completely automated. And there is some resistance, as you can imagine, DOD taking the person out of the, out of the loop from a, sure. Sure. a button pushing. Um, High energy microwave is, is probably the, the longer term solution. You know, we've got a unique, we've been doing radars with microwave power for years and years. Again, the problem with um, energy microwaves is it's rather indiscriminate. So while you would fry all the electronics and, 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 and kill the crystal, everything else in its path, including commercial airplanes or ships, would also suffer from the same thing. So there, there's a lot of work to do. Uh, yeah. The Chinese and the Russians are at least two or three years ahead of us on hypersonic missile. Um, it's, you know, we are working, uh, as is Lockheed Martin, uh, on some, um, some hypersonic missile technology, probably be fielded 23, 24. Um, we'll see how that goes. Um, the bigger market, though, is going to be defense. And I think, yeah, I mean, protecting the homeland. 
And, you know, it, it's not just the, you know, the, the, the shores of our country. It's also all of our shipboard assets, all of our foreign bases. You have to have something that's, that's scalable, portable to defend against hypersonics. And you know, quite frankly, right now, there is a, uh, an influence of power as it relates to the use of these. Fortunately, you know, nobody, no, nobody wants to start a war. I mean, if you launch hypersonics, you know, does somebody else re retaliate with nuclear? So the nuclear deterrent still remains important, but I think uh, we're going to have to think through how we as a country uh, bridge this technology gap that we have. Yeah. And, and Greg, since you brought up space and identifying these from sort of a, a look down perspective, the launching of hypersonics, um, you and I have talked in the past about how space-based identification actually disables stealth technology. That actually uh, you can identify quote-unquote stealthy uh, vehicles by using space to look down because the stealth is designed for a look-up look, you know. And so there's two things, right? You, you got, uh, depending upon the type of radar system that you're using, but typically stealth, stealth works by deflating or absorbing the radar energy from a uh, from, yeah. from some type of a radar. Um, even if it's, if you're using radar from above, what you're gonna see there is you're, you're gonna hit something and not the ocean yeah. or not the landmass. And so even though you don't, may not see it, you know something is there using space-based radar. So if you think about it, right, you, you, you're looking at the ocean and all of a sudden um, your radar returns are hitting something but not the ocean. So yeah. you, something's there. You can tell. So, yeah. so Space-based um, detection systems, of which I think the U.S. probably has the leading capabilities today, are really necessary, especially with, with hypersonics. Uh, but also, you know, the Russians have developed stealth. Um, the Chinese are developing stealth. Sure. Um, this, is a, this is a constant technology battle. Yep. 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 Okay. Well, let's move to the, the topic of China. Um, you know, I am a big believer that it's great power rivalry. Let me just come straight there. It's not a trade war. It's not a tech race. It's all of the above, as well as a space race, as well as an arms race, as well as a currency war, as well as an economic war. And this is de facto great power rivalry. I don't know if we want to call it a cool war or what you want. I mean, I don't need a label for it, but there's a rivalry. And Specifically on that rivalry, there is the issue of uh, U.S. sort of bases, let's say, in Asia and the sort of perimeter that we have around China and the defense implications thereof. You know, given that this is your business, uh, you know, thinking about defense now, uh, how do you think about that? I mean, there have been reports written that the U.S. influence in Asia will wane as the Chinese push uh, their influence further out and the U.S. bases become vulnerable, maybe because of hypersonics, possibly other reasons. But, you know, um, how do you think about that? Well, I think it scares me first and foremost, um, not because the Chinese will ever invade the U.S. mainland, just like we will never invade China, right? There, there is no winning a land war in Asia, right? Um, and unfortunately, the Pacific Ocean protects us from any type of incursion. And I don't think the, you know, the Chinese are not in it for territorial gains, right? They're in it um, for the long game, though, which is, to, again, to continue to project power in their sphere of influence, which they believe to include almost all of Asia, certainly all of the South China Sea. So 
you know, having said that, I think, you know, we have to understand, I would call them a frenemy. Um, we rely on them for supply chain. I think, you know, that, that became very apparent in this, this pandemic, uh, where all the medical supplies are coming from China, and we had no control. We had no, no capabilities. And so for, for some of us, that was a wake-up call for some of us to say, you know what, if this thing ever gets worse, the pandemic or these tensions, we need to think about our supply chain. And, you know, we're a big company. We've got about 600,000 different things that we sell. And about 4,000 of the parts that come out of those come from China. No second source. No second so source. No second source. So we're, we are, in the next five years, going to look for how do we second source or resource all critical components out of China. Because, frankly, they could shut that supply off tomorrow. You know, if you go back to 2009, 2010, when they shut off the supply of rare metals to Japan, yeah. at the time they had 90, 95% of that. Now, rare earths are not all that rare, but the processing capability is pretty expensive and, and pretty difficult to replicate in the short term. And we're in the process of stockpiling rare earths, but also I'm trying to make sure that there is other places. You know, you can go to Australia, you, know, you can go to uh, problem even with those sources is it all goes to China to be processed. Yeah. So we're working with the DOD actively to figure out what do we do about rare earths because we cannot, I mean, rare earths are in everything, right? From your cell phones to your laptops, to your refrigerators, everything, all the permanent magnets. So I think we just have to think more broadly about supply chain. And while it's cheap, cheaper to do in China, you have to weigh that against the risk of supply chain disruption. And I think, again, the president has, has proven one thing is that, you know, um, the trade imbalance matters and he's willing to take some actions that others weren't. Not that it's helpful to our business, but I just say it just, it just, it just exacerbates the, the drama around can we have an assured supply out of China? I think yep. the answer for the most part is you just can't count on for the long term. Yep. Well, it's interesting. I've talked with other executives in corporate boardrooms and the prevailing sentiment that I think I have picked up on is the last 30 years have de facto channeled towards a just-in-time, lowest cost, most efficient supply chain, supply chain strategy. And it's shifted, uh, really starting with the uh, trade war, but definitely after the pandemic into now we want a just-in-case, more resilient, security of supply oriented supply chain strategy. So that's definitely a theme that's emerging uh, across a lot of boardrooms that I've interacted with. Um, yeah, I, I still believe that. I mean, I keep in mind, uh, because I, I'm also in the commercial aerospace business, China represents about 11% of the world's airline traffic, right? And the fastest growing. Yeah. The fact is that you still want a connected world. The world will be connected. I think, again, what you want resilience, not just low cost to your point. Yeah, that's right. So let's keep talking about China a little bit because I know uh, you have some operations on one of their wayward province islands um, that um, I think on a mountaintop there you have some employees maybe. Uh, so I'll, for those that don't know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about the Taiwan issue, uh, which I think has the possibility of being a real flashpoint in the not too distant future as the Chinese attempt to overcome this century of humiliation and the division of their own, their own land. Um, I, I'm sort of disturbed by what we're seeing in Hong Kong. And I think the implications could be 
that Taiwan also becomes a flashpoint. But you know, Greg, you've got people in Taiwan. Yeah, I look. It's a when we were at UTX, we made a conscious decision to pull our work out of Taiwan, our defense-related work, and not sell directly. Uh, we still had FMS sales through the USDOD, which you know would eventually wind up in Taiwan, but we tried to really downplay it. Um, but with Raytheon, the business is one of defensive systems, right? These are big, massive radars that can scan the South China Sea and see any type of incoming attack. Um, and again, a lot of facets of what they do there, but there are people on a mountaintop in Taiwan that are manning these radars on behalf of the Taiwanese government. And it, it is a concern of mine because of the instability. I think if, you know, Hong Kong is just the, the tip of the iceberg, um, I, I can't imagine what, what Taiwan would, uh, would eventually evolve to. But, um, you know, if we ever see tensions getting that high, and you can be assured we're going to pull our folks out of there. Uh, we just can't have our folks at ground zero of a, of a shooting war with China. Yeah. I Personally, I don't think China will do that. I think it's too disruptive to their sure. economy right now. But, uh, you know, clearly, you know, it's been 70 years uh, since Taiwan broke away. Uh, sometime in the next 30 years, will something happen? Very well could. And it really will depend upon the U.S. You know, if we, if we are a staunch ally or, you know, say, look, we're going to make sure that, you know, we, we, we keep the status quo there. Yeah. Uh, I'm just not sure we've got the uh, willpower to do that today. Yeah, well, it's an interesting question. Uh, Reince Priebus talked a little bit about how uh, the Republican National Committee had it as part of their platform, actually, uh, to, to support the freedom fighters, I think was his phrase, um, of uh, the Taiwanese. So uh, interesting, you know, just, interesting just, language. <laughs> yeah, I, I would think, just to put it from the Chinese perspective, though, right? California broken away from the United States, um, and China was defending California, how would we feel about that? I'd be um, happy. Well, I, yeah, personally, you know, I, I'm not sure that I would shed a tear, but I'm just... Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Fact, the fact is, you know, it's a breakaway province in their mind. It's been going for 70 years. We fought a civil war over that, and, sure. you know, 600,000 people died. So um, there are two sides to this, and the you know, peaceful solution is the only solution. Sure. So uh, I want to just remind everyone that's listening, feel free to submit questions through the Q&A tab. I've got a couple of people who've texted my phone and chatted, uh, so that's fine too. I will go through those, but obviously anyone who wants to put it in through the Q&A tab, feel free to do that as well. So Greg, I want to just, before we transition to some leadership lessons, I'm sort of curious, do you have a favorite book? You know, I read uh, maybe one. Aside from this one. Well, okay, so, so, so full disclosure, in the last two weeks, I've read three books, including yours. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I read a lot. Yeah. Um, biographies are probably you know, my, my most favorite. I, I recently wrote about or read about the book about Harry Truman, kind of the accidental president. Mm -hmm. um, fascinating uh, story about how someone steps up in the face of a crisis and really distinguishes themselves. But I think the the best book, and again, I'll I'll give credit. You know, Doris Kearns Goodwin. You know, the, the team of rivals about Lincoln was was fascinating. But this book that uh, Chertoff wrote on Grant uh, that came out maybe a year or two ago, I found that the, the most fascinating lesson in terms of leadership and overcoming of adversity. And here's a guy who, who was thought to be no no better than a drunk, got kicked out of the army at a young age, failed at business, 
multiple times, as did Harry Truman, and yet went on to become one of the most successful presidents in history and one of the great leaders of our country. So um, fascinating book, Grant, if you haven't read it. Yeah, I haven't read it. It's good. I'll, I will put, I'll put that on my list. <laughs> uh, all right. So one of the questions that got sent to me here was, uh, does Greg believe we're in the middle of a Cold War? Has the Cold War technically has the Cold War ever ended? Meaning we were in rivalry with the communists, but we ended one part of it, i.e., the, the the Soviet competition. But the other part of it, uh, we sort of enabled with commerce, uh, thereby leaving us where we are today. Interesting. Yeah, clearly, uh, the Cold War was won, and the victory was lost. Um, Interesting. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Because you know, clearly, you know, the the Soviet Union broke up. Russia was on the ropes. Yeltsin was president, and instead of stepping in as we did with the Marshall Plan after World War II and helping out those countries that had been devastated, we tended to look for ways simply to capitalize on the economic chaos of Russia. Yeah. And similar to what happened in Germany after World War One, this you know dynamic totalitarian leader emerged in Vladimir Putin who has now started the Cold War all over again. Of course, and while they're a nuclear power, it's a different kind of Cold War. Um, they, I don't think they have territorial ambitions. They certainly have ambitions. They're not trying to spread communism. I think they're just trying to protect what they have and to enrich themselves. Yeah. Um, on the Chinese side, it's, it's a different, as I said before, they're almost frenemies, right? We, we need them for low cost sourcing. They need us for our markets. At the same time, you know, I remember talking to uh, the vice premier in China about five years ago, and he said, the problem with you Americans is you worry about the next quarter and the next year. I worry about the next generation. And he said, our our game is such a long game, we're going to wait you guys out. But our goal, again, is not territorial, it's influence. And they are trying to use the economic might that they have developed by our markets to uh, spread their influence around the, the, the world. You see it most definitely in Africa. And from a technology standpoint, they're the second largest defense spender in the world after the U.S. And their technology gets better and better every year. So um, are they a threat? Absolutely. Um, are we in a real Cold War? I don't think so. Again, I think if something like Taiwan were to emerge as a, as a hotspot, uh, certainly it could, it could turn into that. But um, I think right now, and again, especially with the presidential election so near, I think we have a chance to set relations here yep. um, okay. afterwards. Uh, this is, I think, a fascinating question that came, which is uh, the U.S. government's uh, deficit, uh, the budget deficit is skyrocketing. Ultimately, the U.S. government is one of your largest customers. Uh, do you worry about the health financially of one of your largest customers? Uh, well, look, in the short term, I think that our ability to borrow money at essentially zero interest rates give, give us a, a unique uh, point in time here where those deficits, no matter how big, don't matter in the short run. I think the question is, um, how do you get out of these massive deficits? And typically, countries do that through inflating inflation. And my bigger fear long term is, you know, we'll start to see runaway inflation, which means debt's cheaper. But if you have to refinance it, it becomes more expensive. I think on the defense side, as I think about it, you know, the defense budget is $750 odd billion a year out of a what was a $4.5 trillion um, government budget. 
We've just spent over $3 trillion on the pandemic response. We'll probably spend another, pick a number, $1, 2 $3 trillion yet in, in more stimulus. Um, the fact is you're trying to replace a huge chunk of GDP that went away. And so I think as, as long as the money goes into the pockets of individuals and then back into the economy, it, it'll probably be money well spent. But that will have to eventually put pressure on budgets, right? I think the defense budget uh, will not go up in the next several years. Now, we've got a great backlog. I'm fine for the next three. But as I think beyond that, I think it, it's really going to be a challenge in terms of what, what do you fund and what don't you fund. And you know, I remember a conversation I had with General Mattis when he was Secretary of Defense. And he said, you know, don't think about technology um, in terms of the last war. Think about the technology um, for the next war. Said anything that we can't defend today, I'm not going to invest in. That's battleships, that's stationary targets. He said, you know, we have to think differently. So I think that the way you solve this is by presenting the customer that is the Department of Defense technology solutions to some of their problems as opposed to let's build more airplanes and let's build more ships. Yep. Yep. Uh, so a lot of questions coming in here. So I'm going to try to get through some of them here in the time we have left. Uh, uh, how is Raytheon preparing and investing for the cyber battle space? Also, what is Raytheon doing about assisting our institutions against foreign information warfare, i.e. election hacking, misinformation campaigns on social media, et cetera? Is this part of your repertoire of activities? Uh, it is. Um, you know, one of the things, of course, that we don't talk a lot about is uh, Raytheon provides all of the cybersecurity for the .gov, everything in the U.S. government. Uh, we have offensive and defensive cyber capabilities. Um, and all I can tell you, is, it's funny, I had a briefing last year from a gentleman uh, at Raytheon who was running one of their cybersecurity um, operations. Uh, he was probably 28, 29 years old. Uh, he was wearing a T-shirt and a kilt and Keds. And again, one of the smartest guys out there, right? But what he said is, if there's an electronic device in the world, we can hack into it. We have the capability to access through our supercomputing and some of our nascent quantum computing capabilities to get into anything. So, you know, what I would say is we're in pretty good hands. You know, we're, we are not behind the Russian, the Chinese, the North Koreans, or the Iranians in cyber capabilities. Um, that doesn't mean that there are not vectors like zero-day threats that we're going to continue to hear about when new software is rolled out. Um, it is a constant battle. I mean, this is, this is the cyber work is going on today, every single day. We're probing their defenses. They're probing ours. We're looking at infrastructure, their infrastructure, our infrastructure. It is, you know. As General Mattis explained to me, the next war will not be fought with conventional weapons. It will be fought in cyberspace and then outer space. Yep. And that's a, it's a very different way of thinking about it. But I think, again, we feel pretty confident we've got some great technology in both those domains to, to be helpful to the government. Yep. Yep. So, all right, I'm going to ask uh, another question here, and then I want to turn to one of these leadership questions. But what's your favorite movie or miniseries? Well, I was going to say the, uh, the the miniseries that I just got done watching with my wife was called The Americans, okay. which I don't know if anybody has seen that, but that's a, a deep cover Russian spies um, that live in the U.S. as U.S. citizens uh, undercover with their family, and uh, they, they're in covert operations now. The reason I found that so interesting is my wife is a Russian who emigrated to the U.S. when she was 13. Mm -hmm. So I I'm, I'm, I'm always have my eye open to see whether or not she's got that red telephone someplace. There you go. But, 
I would tell you my favorite movie, and this this goes back. It's it's probably The Godfather. Oh, um, lovely. You know, yeah, yeah. It, it could have been Scarface, but really, The Godfather is a much better leadership lesson. Um, yeah. See how your uh, staff reports uh, back when they hear that. Code of Omorta. No, that's a that's a great movie. Uh, all right, so. Uh, Greg, what about your best day in business? We want to sort of some some leadership lessons, some of the, your, your personal experience, uh, your, your best day, and then also your worst day. So let me start with the worst day, and this this is this will be familiar to some of those who followed UTX. Um, Dave Cody and I, Dave Cody was running Honeywell at the time. Terrence, you know, he and I had been having some discussions about a potential merger or potential spinoff of part, you know, our carrier business to his. And uh, it was a Friday morning. I was in a business review with Pratt Whitney, and I get a phone call, and it's Dave. And Dave said, I'm about to send you a letter um, uh, make, making an offer to take over your company. And I had been the CEO for about 14 months. Um, that was a bad day. Hmm. Um, it was interesting. You know, Dave, um, a little overreach on Dave. Honeywell was smaller than UTX at the time. Our stock price was down. Um, because of some trouble with the, with the geared turbofan engine, I'm trying to take advantage of the situation. I say that was a bad, bad day. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's hard to say. You know, what's the what's the best day? I, I, you know, the best day for me, you know, is, is when I hear from employees about you know what we're doing to help them out. Um, I, I get a lot of feedback, and I read all my emails. I try and respond to as many as I can. I tell you, it's hearing people's stories and. and I think that we can make a difference in people's lives, whether it's through our education program, whether it's through our charitable do- donations, whether it's through volunteer efforts. Sure. There's just a lot of things that make the job very enjoyable. Um, sure. Good. My, my, my next best day was the day I get to go back to the office. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, all right, Greg. So I've got another question here that said basically, uh, or is asking, how do you keep a long-term oriented business in the public markets with short-term oriented analysts. How do you get, you know, you, in fact, we, we had the experience of back in the, in the UTX days with a whole bunch of uh, activist shareholders that were perhaps even the epitome of short-termism, at least in some, some respects. Uh, so I thought that that's an interesting question. Curious yeah, no, it, it, it is the, the, the quandary of business. And actually it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, the purpose of the corporation, right? It's to enrich the, the guy that bought the stock yesterday. Um, I remember when, when Bill Ackman and uh, Dan got into our stock a couple of years ago, and you know they called me up and had this manifesto: "You got to do this, you got to do that." And I'm like, guys, trust me, I'm I'm, do- I'm going to do the things you want me to do. We're going to break the company up. We're going to do a lot of things to create value. And they said, "Well, we're both of them together said we're long-term holders." <laughs> uh huh. Um, long-term. Yeah, long-term being a nanosecond yeah. uh, or the life of a fruit fly. Um, yeah. the, the fact is, you know, like last year we were talking, um, when, when we made the deal to merge with Raytheon, both Admin and Loeb, you know, publicly ridiculed me. Right? Mm-hmm. said, look, this is the stupidest thing you could have done. You don't understand. You had this great business. How could you possibly do this? And um, both of them got out of the stock over the next six months before the, the merger closed. Um, left a lot of money on the table in, in the course of doing that. But I think, you know, what you have to do is you, you have to pay attention to the sell side analysts. They're still out there. They still come up with consensus. 
but our focus is on those investors, the buy side folks who have the longer term viewpoint. Yeah. All right, so you go to the guy like uh, Capital, uh, the guys from Summit Fidelity, T. Real Price, others who have a much longer, those are the people you want holding the stock. U.S. Trust, um, Wellington, and others. They, you know, they're investing their clients' money, not for the next quarter, right? If you, want to, if you worry about the next quarter, put your money in a hedge fund. If you want your money to grow over time as the economy grows um, and have generational wealth, you know, we're focused on those people that do have a longer term perspective. It's unfortunate, you know, some, some of these guys do have quarterly targets, monthly targets that they've got to hit. Sure. If they're trying to make money on a, on a quarter, quarter basis in our stock, they're, they're in the wrong stock. So uh, the, the focus is making sure that you're appealing to those investors who have the same time horizon as you do. Yeah, yeah. And it does sound like you cultivated those uh, also to, to sort yeah. of generate, and thinking of shareholding as a, almost a strategic advantage to how you can run your business you have to cultivate you have to spend time and I, I talked to in the last month i've talked to all the top 15 holders long-term holders of, of utx you know the hedge funds will call and you know we'll answer their questions since they do own the stock but uh, the focus really has to be on cultivating relationships to the long term and then having a story that they can sell to their clients right yeah. and, you know on commercial aerospace on defense on technology um, we have all the makings of a great long-term story, perturbations, but generally going up. Sure. Uh, so, <laughs> question is very simple. Question: Is Greg optimistic or pessimistic about the next five years? Oh, I'm I'm completely optimistic. I think again, you know, there is going to be short-term pain. This this pandemic, whether it's the pandemic of racism or the pandemic of COVID-19, yep. there's going to be some tough discussions. There's going to be some bad headlines in the next six and twelve months. But as I think about you know, the, the country, as I think about the world economy, you know, we are amazingly resilient, right? I, I am a true believer that in the American success story that things will get better, people will travel, people will invest in technology. You know, the way we do work will be different, but I'm optimistic that's actually maybe a better quality of life for people. So I, I, am, I am completely optimistic about the long term here. Okay, I'm gonna ask this question. You can say no, you don't wanna answer it. Uh, does he feel like Trump will win? Well, it sure seems like he's doing everything he can to lose right now. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it was, it's funny, I had to go back to 2016. I gave a speech at the uh, Committee on Foreign Relations in New York, and I started my speech by saying, I was talking about education and, and our obligation to educate people. And I said, it'll be good that we have a new president who's focused on youth, and that will be, of course, Hillary Clinton. That was October. Um, I, I was wrong there, so I'm not a great prognosticator. <laughs> clearly, clearly, I think the, uh, the sentiment in the country is different today. Sure. Um, really, it will all hinge, I really believe, on Joe Biden's vice presidential choice. If he picks someone like himself, a centrist, somebody who people can relate to, I think he will win easily. If he picks some, uh, someone ultra-progressive left-wing who people who would say, I don't want that person to be the president, uh, he could end up like John McCain with Sarah Palin or that nullified sure. um, McCain's chances. Yeah, well, it's going to be interesting to watch, <laughs> for sure. So, uh, Greg, we're running out of time here, but I wanted to just take a moment to thank you. Uh, I've enjoyed our... Uh, friendship and discussions over the last few years, and it's been uh, really stimulating uh, as 
like this conversation, frankly. Wide ranging, interesting, thoughtful. Uh, thank you. Uh, that's really all I have to say is thank you so much for well, everything. Thanks for the book to everybody who hasn't read it. Get a copy of it to my entire leadership team. And thinking for yourself, it's something that we all need to do, and it's too easy not to. So thanks for writing that, and thanks for giving me the opportunity today. And uh, thanks to everyone who took the time to listen through to the end of this interview. As you can probably tell, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Greg and his leadership team, as well as their processes for making tough decisions in the face of uncertainty. I've learned a lot and I hope you will take the time to read about it, uh, my experiences with United Technologies and with Greg's team uh, in Think for Yourself. And finally, a reminder, if you haven't already done so, I'd encourage you to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Podbean. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to this interview, and I do hope that you take the time to purchase the book.